My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilton Hills Church, and it really is good to be with all of you and to come together and, and worship, have our little uh, gospel honky-tonk, hoedown, bluegrass uh, festival. That was great. And, um, and now we just study the Word. That's just what we do here. Uh, we're having a Q&A, question and answer time, this Tuesday, October 14th at 7 o'clock. Paul, Eddie, and I uh, had that up. We both teach at Bethel University. We both are pastors here at the church. And we just enjoy this kind of thing. Often we have a topic that we center the questions around, but this one's going to be a free-for-all. Come with whatever questions you have, uh, theological or whatever, and um, uh, if you do the whatever part, not the theological, we're not going to have an answer, but you feel free to ask it. Uh, but but uh, just come with your questions, and, and we'll get through as many as we can. We are in the second week of our Great Adventure series. We do this a couple times a year. We get small groups formed around the topic that we're going to be preaching on. And we've got a prayer journal and some other things, study guides available uh, to help go deeper uh, with this topic uh, than we can get to in the sermons. Uh, We are just going through the book of Luke. That's what we do here. Nothing fancy. We just study the Bible and say what it says. And so we're in Luke chapters 14 and 15. That's what the series is being based on. The series is called The Great Reversal because we're looking at all the ways in which the kingdom uh, is really the upside down or the reverse of our common sense. If your your kingdom, your life, your Christianity makes sense to you and fits your common sense, you're probably not getting it. Uh, This thing is topsy-turvy through and through. And so we're really looking at the ways in which the kingdom reverses all of our ordinary common sense expectations. And we're now looking at Luke chapter 14, 15 through 24. And I want to entitle this message, The Upside Down Invitation. Now, just a little background. If you were here last week, you saw that um, Jesus had been invited over to the house of this prominent Pharisee. They're having a little bit of a festival, a little feast, and it was on the Sabbath. And it turns out the whole thing was set up as a trap. Uh, They had uh, invited a guy off the street who had dropsy, this this condition where his body was all swelled up. And what they wanted to know was, was Jesus going to heal this man on the Sabbath, thereby breaking one of their most fundamental rules? And so the whole thing was was a setup. Uh, Jesus goes to this man's house. Jesus, unlike most people in the first century, didn't just identify with one group. Uh, He went wherever he was invited. And so he goes to this house... And not only does he bite the bait of this trap by healing this man on the Sabbath, but he actually is the aggressor in this, as we saw last week. And he gives this teaching that we chewed on last week about how we as kingdom people, when we throw a banquet, we're to invite people who normally wouldn't get invited to our banquet. And the principle we extracted out of that was simply that that we're to avoid kingdom people, while we of course have our friends that we like to hang out with, our preferred social groups, understandable, nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But at the same time, we have to make space in our lives to include people who don't look like us, maybe don't think like us, don't sing like us, maybe don't smell like us, don't have our abilities. We need to especially include people who are off the social radar screen, the disabled, the poor, the oppressed. And it's not just because we want to be good deed doers and share our abundance with them, though that is a good thing, but it's even more about we, us needing them. When we don't have people who are significantly different from ourselves in our life, we become myopic. We suffer from social and cultural, national, maybe even racial myopia and and a a narrow vision. And to reflect God's heart, we have to have God's vision and we need others in in our life. So we have to 
really think intentionally in our small groups, in our families, how can we live a life that includes others who normally wouldn't be on our radar screen, and especially those who aren't on anyone's radar screen? That was the principle from last week. Now we're going to see Jesus take this a little bit deeper, and, and in, this, in, in this parable that he tells here, I think we see Jesus' genius most at work. He is going to ingeniously turn this thing around. They set up a trap for him. And what he's going to do is basically show that the trap they set up for him is really a trap for themselves. So listen to this. Uh, Starting with verse 15 of Luke chapter 14. When one of those at the table with him heard this, this teaching about when you throw a banquet and invite everybody, he said to Jesus, and remember these are all a bunch of Pharisees here, Blessed are those who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, fine, let's go with that. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the, ban- at the, time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But surprisingly, they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married. No way am I going to take a break to go to your party. Uh, So forget about it. That's my, my paraphrase. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets in the alleys of the town and bring in the poor the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The very ones he just got through talking about last week uh, and telling us to invite them when we throw a banquet. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them. Go out everywhere, he's saying, and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And that's the objective of this host. He wants a full party. I tell you, not one of those who were initially invited will get a taste of my banquet. Pray with me here for a moment. Lord, we surrender this next 40 minutes over to you and ask that you saturate this. Holy Spirit, saturate this word. Uh, Open our eyes and our ears for all those who are in this auditorium and those who are listening through podcast or through television or any other means. Open their ears, open their eyes, open their minds, open their hearts, open their lives to receive the kingdom in all of its radicalness, in its beautiful differentness. Free us from the tyranny of our common sense and our self-assurance to live as bold disciples of your kingdom In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. So Jesus is sitting down to eat after that uh, episode we looked at last week. I imagine it's a little bit awkward. They're trying to trap him. He breaks one of their rules. Now they're kind of angry. He asked them these questions, and it said last week that they remained silent. Twice they remained silent. So there's this weird silence. I don't know if you've ever been to a party where somebody there, or maybe some a number of people there don't like you. You ever been to a party where they don't like you? Um, you know, sometimes Christmas is going to be like that. Uh, you show up and, you, you, you know, they had to invite you, but you're not really welcome. Uh, and it's awkward. It's very awkward. 
So I imagine they're sitting down to eat and, and you know, everyone's in their own little world of thought. Awkward silence. And so this guy decides to break the silence by talking about a, something they could obviously all agree upon. Blessed are those who will eat at the feast of the kingdom, which is simply the Jewish way of saying, I mean, they all believe that when the kingdom comes, they're going to have a great banquet with Yahweh and, and whatever. And the New Testament endorses that view. So he's saying, blessed are those who will eat at the banquet table of the Lord when the kingdom comes. And Jesus really says, yes, you're right. You know, yes, of course, we all believe that. But the interesting question, since you want to talk about the kingdom, is who's going to be at that table, that banquet table? Are you sure you know who's going to be at that banquet table? Now, he's talking to a group of people who are very, very, very certain that they will be at that banquet table. All these Pharisees, I mean, they are just the epitome of religiosity in the first century. They're confident because, after all, they're Jewish and they're part of the chosen people. They're confident because not only do they keep the law, but they're the guardians of the law. They're probably confident because they probably evidence the sign of the covenant blessing in the Old Testament. They're healthy as opposed to these unhealthy people who they see as being cursed by God. Uh, they're wealthy as opposed to the poor people who, uh, who, who they see as being cursed by God. So they're healthy, they're wealthy, they're happy, they're Jewish, and they're religious. So duh, we're going to be in the kingdom. It's quite obvious, really. And the Gentiles and the disabled and the poor, where their status is at least questionable. And what Jesus does here in this parable is he turns the table. And what he's going to reveal is that nationality and religiosity and health and wealth have got nothing to do with whether you're going to sit down at the banquet table or not. I want to give the story, and then I'm going to give the background to the story, and then I'm going to apply the story to our, our situation, our lives here today. The story is about a guy who throws a banquet. Uh, everyone in the first century would have understood that this is a wealthy guy because they're the ones who throw the big banquets. He's probably got a mansion, and he, he's throwing a, a feast, and he's, he's going to invite his friends. As we said last uh, week, um, uh, eating together in the first century wasn't just uh, about a meal. It was primarily about a social identification. Who you ate with uh, manifested, demonstrated, revealed your tribe, your people. This is who you belong to. So this guy naturally invites all the other wealthy people, all of his rich friends, the yuppity, muckety mucks. Uh, they're going to be invited to this, to this uh, great feast that he's going to have. This is his social group. Surprisingly, they all give excuses. Too busy to come. And as Scott points out in his prayer journal, some of these excuses are at least a little bit suspect. I mean, the guy says, I just purchased some land, and so now I've got to go check it out. Well, don't you usually check out land before you buy it? The other guy says, I got to go check out my ox you know, that, I, that, that I just bought. Well, don't you usually check out the ox before you buy them? There's something suspect about all of these excuses. What they all have in common, however, is that the people are saying, look, it, I'm too busy doing my own thing to get on board with your party. And they're really dissing the host. It's really an insult to the host. So the, the host gets angry and he says, okay, tell you what, you go out, first of all, into the inner city. You go into the, to, to, to the towns and the alleys where the poor people live, where the beggars live, where the, where the, the, the lowlifes, quote-unquote, of the first century live, and I want you to invite all these folks who normally would never get invited to my party. I want you to go to the poor and to the disabled, the lame and the blind, and invite them. The guy says, okay, we've already done that. Uh, and there's still room. And so now the guy says, okay, then go out and invite everybody. Go on the hillside. Invite those peasant farmers. 
uh, that are really working as slaves to the Roman government uh, and, and invite them, compel them to come in. Compel them to come in. And what's radical about this is not just that he's inviting these folks, but remember in the first century, he's now saying, I'm going to identify with these folks. This is going to be my new tribe. These outcasts, these misfits, these lowlifes are now going to be my new group. The judged, the oppressed, they're going to be my new group. This invitation is not based on anything found in the recipients. It's not based on social standing. It's not based on sameness, on the equality of the host and the recipients. This invitation is based on one thing only, and that is the graciousness of the host and the abundance of his resources, and the fact that he wants his house full. He doesn't care any longer what your social standing is, what your ability level is, what your income is, what your religiosity is or isn't. This is a free-for-all, ali ali in free Whoever wants some food, come here, because I want my house full, and I've got, I've got the ability to feed everybody. It's based on the graciousness of the host and on nothing else. It says that he, he, he tells his servant to go out and compel them to come in. Compel them. Now, you may not have known it, but this one verse here in in Luke has been the most tragically interpreted and most grotesquely abused verse in the Bible, in my opinion. It started with St. Augustine in the 5th century. And St. Augustine had some wonderful theology and I'm sure was a wonderful person and said some wonderful things. But he also screwed up the church in the most magnificent way imaginable Uh, for centuries and was still under some of his screwed upness. He took this verse to justify, compel them to come in. He took it and used it to justify torturing people to get into the faith. Hey, it says compel them. Doesn't say how to compel them. So uh, perhaps a little pain would help persuade them uh, to give up their heresies or, or being infidels and to come into the church. He was the first one to do that. And once he did it, well, the whole history of the Middle Ages was about burning witches and, and Jews and Muslims and heretics at the stake or inflicting other kinds of torture on them, trying to elicit a confession of faith from them. Which, when you think about it, is pretty stupid because even if you get a confession of faith, I mean, honestly, a guy's burning at the stake, he goes, okay, I, I guess I do believe in Jesus. Uh, yeah, right. It just, I think, goes to show how stupid religion is, how demonic religion can be, how you can take something that is, in its original context, perfectly beautiful, and turn it into something that justifies complete demonic ugliness. Because in the original verse, this is a beautiful passage. Here is this host, he's wealthy, he's got a mansion, he's got all this food, and he says, compel the, the, the beggars, compel the farmers, compare, compel the disabled to come and eat at, at, at my, my feast. And the word compel there does not mean coerce. No, it means to implore, to beg. Beg them. I want them in my house so badly. I want my house to be full. It's a statement of humility. I'm compelling you to come to my party. And with Augustine, it got totally screwed up. Get a picture of what this would look like. We get a mansion, and there's opulence, and there's this great feast, and there's a great ballroom. It's huge. And now you have it filled got the nicely dressed host and everything's nice and clean and tidy and all this food and all this opulence, but it's filled with people who are off the streets, uh, people who, are, who come with their rags, who come with their issues, with their disabilities. Uh, you've got the poor there, the, the beggars, the lame, the blind, the disabled, 
Uh, you've got the, 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 the peasant farmers there. You're going to have all, he says, just go out and invite everybody. You're going to have the, t- the tax collectors who rip off people. You're going to have the prostitutes there. You have a, a ballroom full of what would have been dirty, smelly misfits in this opulent house. Folks, that is a vision of the kingdom. That is a vision of the kingdom. These folks all together having a feast like they've never had before. The reason the, the host would have to compel them to come is because the people themselves probably would have trouble believing this. Like, what is this? Some kind of joke? You're going to make fun of me? Is this some kind of a trick? Why would I ever be invited to that person's party? And the host is saying, beg them, compel them, persuade them that in fact, I mean it. I really want them. They are my new group. They are my new tribe. And in telling this story, Jesus is turning the table on the Pharisees. Now, to understand that, we've got to know a little bit of, of background here, okay? Biblical background to this parable. If you go back to the beginning, the only thing God ever wanted, the reason he created the world, the reason he created humanity, was to invite us in at a banquet, a supper. He is a God of infinite resources. He's the epitome of, uh, he is the definition of love and goodness and joy and peace himself. And he wants to share himself with us. He created us to receive his love, to reflect his love, and to spend eternity feasting on his love, dancing with his love, celebrating his love. That's the, that's the creational goal from the start. That's all he ever wanted. Uh, an invitation that would be based not on our merits, but simply on his goodness and on his grace and the infinite opulence of his resources. The fall, the rebellion, spoken about in Genesis 3, complicated matters significantly. And now God was going to have to go through a long process of getting us back to the place where we'd really trust him and see that he means this invitation and uh, engage us in accepting that invitation. And so one of the strategies got hit on, it's the main strategy spoken of in the, the Bible, was to raise up a nation of people who he would groom to accept his invitation and then would use to extend that invitation to all the other nations. This was the first mustard seed principle. God's way of winning the world back to himself and getting this world uh, to to come to his banquet table and to, to feast on him. And so Israel was chosen to be a nation of priests. Their main job was to receive the opulent blessing of God and then to be to embody God's character and will to attract the rest of the world to Yahweh. And you find this theme throughout the Old Testament. They're a nation of priests. They're a nation of servants. They're to model who God is to the other nations to draw all nations unto God. The invitation has always been what we read earlier during our worship service, Isaiah 55. Whoever is thirsty, whoever is hungry... Come to my table without, you don't need any money, no prerequisites, no preconditions. I just have a table here and whoever wants it can come. That's always been God's invitation. See, Israel, Israel had trouble getting that one. They continually wanted to do their own thing. They got involved in the nasty idol of religion and the idol of nationalism. They began to interpret their chosen status before God uh, as a badge of righteousness, as, as sort of a, a holy club. We are the ones that God likes more than other people. Rather than seeing it as a vocational call to serve others, they began to define themselves as sort of the group of the righteous and began to judge the very people they were called to serve. Israel became a, a holy club that saw their special status before God as simply being about a bless me thing. We are the blessed people, not them. 
And they begin to look down and disdain and judge the very people they're to be serving. Now, God is a patient God. He, he doesn't give up easily, easily. And the whole Old Testament record is really centered on him trying to work with these people to get them to get it. And he makes concession after concession to help them get it. Uh, you know, the Old Testament doesn't reveal much of God's ideal will. It's mainly about concessions he makes to these people. Um, if you can't meet this bar, okay, I'll lower the bar. God's flexible like this. I'll meet you halfway. You can't do, poly you can't do monogamy? Okay, we'll go with polygamy for a while. Uh, polygamy is not working either. Okay, we'll add on the concubine thing. I mean, he's a God who's flexible. Okay, I, I, I'm trying to make this work. He gives them the law as a concession. The law doesn't represent God's ideal will. The, God's ideal will was for them to directly relate to him, but they got freaked out at that whole thing on Mount Sinai, so he gives the law kind of to mediate that whole thing, but it's a concession. God allows them to have a king as a concession. He didn't want the politics and the government and the military and all that stuff. He wanted to be their king, but as a concession, because of their rebellion, they want to do it their own way, he meets them halfway, and so he lets them have that. The use of the sword in the Old Testament, the use of violence was a concession. That was never part of God's ideal will. In fact, if you read it really carefully, you'll find that when God brought them out of Egypt, he tells them, you're not going to have to use a sword, which is a good thing because at that time they didn't have any swords. He says, trust in me. I'll fight your battles for you. And his plan on getting them in the land of Canaan. Read Exodus 23, for example. He says, I'm going to relocate those people, uh, but you're not going to have to use the sword. I'll use pestilence. I'll use some hornets and make it kind of miserable for them. And gradually, he says, I'll relocate them. I don't want to do it really fast, however, because that would leave the, the, leave the land abandoned and would leave the animals uncared for. And you guys don't know how to deal with the land yet and don't know how to take care of animals. So gradually, I'm going to relocate them and, 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 and put you in there. And then as a concession, this, the violence is used. But that doesn't represent God's ideal will. The government in the Old Testament, the nationalism, the violence, the law... None of that represents God's ideal will. It's all a matter of concession, but the people still don't get it. God then sends prophet after prophet trying to call them back to that original mandate to just be recipients of his blessing and, and, and dispensers of his blessing, but they reject the prophets, and eventually they kill the prophets. And at some point, God says, done, done. And I don't know what this would have looked like had Israel not been like this, but God... At one point, some point, basically says, if you want something done, you got to do it yourself. And so he becomes a human being and takes on flesh and becomes one of us. He identifies himself with the whole tribe of humans in all of our fallenness. And in Christ, we see for the first time in biblical history, God's character and will perfectly manifested apart from all the concessions. Here's what God is really like. That's why we emphasize that so much here at Woodland Hills Church. This is the, the true revelation of God's character and will. That's why Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. Uh, he's the word of God, the image of God, the perfect expression of God. In Christ, we see what God's real character and will is like. And in Christ, we see that original invitation being given to all people, whoever's hungry, whoever, who, who, whoever's thirsty. In Christ, we see what God is like if you strip away all the concessions. Strip away the concession to the law. Strip away the concession to nationalism, the concession to violence. Uh, the, all the, the various uh, concessions that God made, strip it all away, and what you get is a God who looks like Jesus Christ. And he's not a nationalistic God. He's a God of all peoples. He's not a God of law. He's a God of outrageous grace. 
Uh, he's not a God of violence. He's a God who gives his life on the cross for his enemies, praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That is what God is really like. And in Christ, we see that original invitation where God is saying, all I ever want is for people to accept my invitation to come and join me in this feast and this eternal celebration uh, on my opulent and extravagant and unending goodness. Christ embodies that original invitation because Christ embodies God's original character, true character, and true will. But see, those who are invested in the concessions don't see it. Those who are invested in the law, they don't see it. Those who are really invested in the violence and the nationalism don't see it. The ones who are looking for a Messiah who's going to pick up the sword and, 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 and fight for the nation and, and, and beat up the Romans, they don't see it. They have got now their box of what God must look like, and Jesus doesn't fit that box. And so they, without knowing it, at least on some level they probably did, but, but, but consciously they did, they're rejecting the invitation. They're rejecting the invitation. And the ones who get the invitation now, what's all the people that hung out with Jesus? The ones who lose in the holy game thing. Uh, you know, Israel saw themselves as sort of a set apart, you know, we're holy and you're not, and the world's divided into insider outsiders. Well, now the outsiders get it. The losers at the religion game and the losers at the nationalistic game and the losers at the political game, they now are open to hear and receive the invitation that God is extending through Jesus Christ. Those who, are, who know that they have no place to stand before God unless it's based on God, not them. Those who are least inclined to judge others because they're always the ones who are being judged by others, those are the ones who get it. The outsiders, the misfits, the downcast. And Jesus reveals that God is on their side throughout his life, but then especially on Calvary when he dies a criminal death. This is my tribe. These losers, these outcasts, these criminals, those most judged by society and by religion, this is my tribe. And the punchline of the whole thing, remember, Jesus is responding to the statement, blessed are those who are going to be in the kingdom. Jesus is saying, yeah, you're right, blessed are those. But I'm here to tell you that you who sit around this table so smugly judging me and judging the man who just got healed because we broke one of your religious rules, uh, you who think that you're, uh, because of your nationality, you trust in your nationality, you trust in your, your righteousness, your own righteousness, you're busy doing your own thing, uh, you are actually, without knowing it, re re rejecting God's invitation. Whereas that guy who just got healed, uh, he is accepting God's invitation, and the evidence is that he just got healed. Uh, you are so assured and self-confident based on who you are that you think somehow you merit this invitation you're going to find yourself on the outside where all those that you judge as being outsiders, they're going to be on the insider, inside. And the irony is that the trap you just set for me, you just got yourself caught in because you revealed a heart that's far from the true God, the real God. In fact, the real irony, the real irony is this. That, that feast that they're talking about right now isn't just in the future, it's right in front of them. Jesus is the kingdom. He is the dome over which God reigns. And, and uh, so this, this, this feast isn't just something future, it's right in front of them. And the irony is that the guy who they judge as being cursed because he had dropsy, he just got healed. That guy, who would normally never be invited to a Pharisee dinner, that guy just took the first bite of the feast. He just tasted of me. He just was healed. He's the first benefactor of the kingdom. But you who sit around here and are plotting my death, well, you're the ones who are entrapped. You're entrapped in the idol 
of your religion, your nationalism, and your self-assurance that you'll be at that table. So let's apply this to ourselves. What does it mean for us? That's the background of the Old Testament, the meaning it had, how Jesus turned the table. What does it mean for us? Okay, look at it. The way parables work is that a story is told and the audience identifies with one of the characters. A parable is there to sort of catch people by identifying with the characters and they're meant to sort of help us wake up if we identify with one of the characters to get get some self-understanding. There's two real characters here that the parable is centered on. Um, as, it, as, as it pertains to the audience that's hearing this. On the one hand, you have those who were originally invited, those who you expect to be invited, those who were supposed to be at, at the banquet, and then you have those who uh, were uh, the poor and the lame and the disabled and the farmers out in the countryside who get invited because this first group rejects it. Those are the, first, those are the two groups. There's a warning in this parable to the first group, the righteous group, the holy group. And there's a, a word of promise to those who would be in the first century regarded as outcasts. So let's talk about these two groups and who do they pertain to. Let's talk about the warning first. Who does the warning pertain to? I want to submit to you folks that it pertains to us. Uh, we have to, in all honesty, submit ourselves to this parable and say, how does it apply to us? Because probably many of us sitting in this auditorium or listening by some other means are pretty assured that we're, on the, we're insiders. And I'm not here to upset anyone's assurance. I think you should be totally assured and confident of your relationship with God and not worried about your salvation. I, 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 that assurance is a good thing. The question that this parable asks us is, why are we assured? Why? On what do we stand? We have to ask ourselves, and this is a question for the church as a whole, how different is the modern Christian church, how different is it from ancient Israel? and from the Pharisees, really. How different? Seems to me that a a primary model of Christianity that many people hold today is something like this. We are insiders and we are confident that we stand in right relationship with God because we believe the right things, we believe in Jesus, we believe in the Bible, we believe in God, we believe in morality, and we go to church and maybe do a couple other things. So we are sure we are insiders. It's kind of the model of Christianity. And uh, the insiders tend to look down on the outsiders at least certain segments of those who are outside. In our confidence, we kind of sometimes look down in judgment and disdain on those who are the outsiders. It seems to me that much of the church interprets being the church primarily as a bless me club. It's a holy club. We are the people who are saved. We are the people who are blessed. We are the people who know the truth. But the idea that to be the church is to be the servant of the world is not so common. We seem to have lost our, our sense that the primary thing is about a vocation We seem to have lost that just about as much as uh, the ancient Israelites did. How different is the church from ancient Israel? We have uh, all of our reasons for being confident. Some will add to this confidence this way. They'll say, well, look it, just like the the Pharisees did. Uh, One sign that we are the blessed and special and holy people of God is that we are healthy and that we are wealthy. We're so blessed by God. We couldn't be this blessed unless we were special before God. And so we interpret some of those same signs of the covenants that the ancient Pharisees did. 
Proof of that, we're, that God is on our side is that we are so blessed. And then some add to that another layer of self-assurance. Not only are we Christians and not only are we blessed and believe the right things and have our religion and are very confident, but we are also Americans. And everybody knows that God is on the side of America and, and we are the blessed nation, one nation under God. And, and, and our cause is always righteous and just. And, and God fights on our side against the evildoers. That's why Christians are often the, the biggest cheerleaders when America goes to war, proclaiming that this is a holy war despite the fact that Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Uh, and, and so they rally around that. We're American and we're Christian and we're confident that we are the ones who will be at the table. We've got to let this parable question that, uh, call that, that, that basis of our confidence into question. Let's add, you know, Israel, remember, was called to be the servant of the world to manifest and embody God's character, humble character to win the world back to Yahweh. Is the church doing that? Uh, is the church known for its self-sacrificial love and for its humility? Are we known for the way that we attract people to Jesus by our humble service? Are we attracting people to Jesus because of our humility and humble servant love? Do we look like Jesus? Jesus, it's interesting to note, wherever he went, though he's the one sinless person in history, he attracted prostitutes and tax collectors. Prostitutes being the lowest form of immoral sin groups in the first century. The tax collectors were sort of the wealthy, greedy people who everyone despised because they're ripping off their own people. He attracted those folks to himself. They stared clear of the Pharisees because the Pharisees judged them. Jesus was the one truly holy person in history, but he had a kind of holiness that didn't repel sinners, it attracted sinners because they were the ones that the invitation was being extended to. The Pharisees had a kind of holiness. It was a religious holiness, a legalistic holiness, a judgmental holiness, and it repelled those sorts of people. So the church today has got to ask itself, where are the prostitutes and the tax collectors? If we're the body of Christ, we're supposed to be doing the exact same thing that Jesus did, attracting the same people that Jesus did, extending the same invitation that Jesus did. Where are the prostitutes and the tax collectors? It seems to me that on the whole, the tax collectors and prostitutes of our day steer as clear from the church as they did the Pharisees in the first century, which has got to force on us the conclusion that to a large degree, thank God for the beautiful exceptions, but to a large degree, the church embodies the spirit of Phariseeism more than it does the spirit of Jesus. There's no other possible conclusion to come to. I read a book several weeks ago called Unchristian. Anyone ever read that book? Uh, it's a hard-hitting book. Um, it basically does a survey of, of what is the perception of Christians among non-Christians in America. And it ain't pretty. Um, ask the question, what are we known for? Well, the book, I could summarize it shortly by saying this. What the book reveals is that uh, we're known for a lot of things. Conservative Christians especially are known for a lot of things. But humility and self-sacrificial love isn't in the top 100. And I can't think of a greater indictment on the church as a whole than that. We're not known for that. Now, of course, the old excuse is, well, we are the most loving people on the planet. They just don't get it. They just don't know what real love is. And I submit to you that that just is one more sign of our arrogance. You know, you can get a husband who, and I... This is not hypothetical. Uh, who who is, is mistreats his wife and is encouraged to his wife, but he insists that he's the most loving husband in the world. The wife just doesn't get it. But maybe, maybe if the wife and the friends say, no, dude, you really are a jerk. You don't treat your, your wife right. Uh, maybe he'd be wise to listen to that. If you want to know whether you're loving or not, maybe you're not the right, right, right one to ask. Ask the person you're supposed to be loving. 
So we've got to ask the world, do you feel loved by us? And the answer they're giving unequivocally is no. The perception they have is that Christians see themselves as sort of the righteous club, the holy club, the truth club, and, and sort of set apart, you know, over there. And uh, uh, everyone knows, the studies are out, everyone knows, it's kind of obvious that, that in terms of core values, we're no different than, than unchristians. Uh, in terms of greed, we're just the same as unchristians. Gluttony, same as uh, the, the non-Christians. Just as prone towards violence uh, as, as, as the non-Christian. More self-righteous than most of the non-Christians. Have a divorce rate that is actually higher than the non-Christians. You know, there's not a whole lot to set us apart. But by golly, we set ourselves up as the group who really know God, who really stand for truth and righteousness. And we're going to fix America. We're going to take America back for God. We're the defense of truth and justice and, 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 and we're here to save marriages from those gay people not our divorces but from those gay people we're the ones who will stand for that and we'll take prayer back into school and we're going to fix the world and we're going to fight with America to rid the world of evildoers and all the non-Christians around are looking at this holy club and they're saying you have got to be kidding us you have got to be kidding us oh and by the way we are most loving and that folks, folks the parable has got to just confront us has got to confront us. And I, I just would, I feel like this is a word that, just, that the church needs to hear and have the humility to receive. The truth is, and what this parable is revealing, is that we are no better than anybody. We're no more righteous than anybody. We're no more holy than anybody. We're not smarter than anybody. We got nothing on anybody. We are not a holy club. We are not a save club. We're not a fix America club. We're not a fix society club. We're not, we're not the fix the world club. We can't even fix ourselves for crying out loud. We've got no place to judge anybody, and God never called us to judge anybody. He's the only judge who decides who's inside and outside. Our one job description is to serve, is to love, is to be humble. Our one job description, and it's, it's what God called Israel to, and we're to embody it, is to manifest in our life, in our deeds, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, to manifest God's outrageous love, this outrageous invitation, this Ali Ali in free, come one and come all, is to manifest the humble servant character of God. It's to reach out to, to, to those that society trods on and, and, and the, the ones that religion most judges. We're just a bunch of beggars who found some food and our one job is to extend that food to other people. Yeah. Got nothing on anybody. Yeah. It means, it means, it means, it means in the kingdom, if this parable says anything to us, it means that at the foundation of true godliness is humility. Humility that is very aware that the playing field is leveled and that there's no points given for your righteousness or what you think is your righteousness. And the king, that's why Jesus said, blessed are the, the lowly, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble. And why the Bible from beginning to end is against any kind of arrogance and haughtiness. And, and, and judgment. Humility is the foundation for the whole thing. That's why Jesus said, consider your own sin to be a two-by-four coming out of your eye, a tree trunk, a log, whatever it may be, and whatever sin you see in another person, consider it to be a mere dust particle. Now, society may say, oh, their sin's way worse than your sin. Society and religion has all this kind of sin gradation stuff, but in the kingdom, we're not to have that. We're to consider our own sin to be much greater than whatever sin we see in another person, which is why we're to consider it an honor 
to wash their feet, an honor to serve them, and an honor to, in our life, invite them to the banquet table. It's why Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, here's a saying that everybody should repeat. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. To consider whatever sin we see in another, ours is worse than that. And see, if a fraction of Christians did that, we would be known as the most humble, self-effacing servant people on the planet rather than the arrogant, holy club, save club, righteous club that thinks it can, it, it can fix other people. We're called to humility. It means there's no points given in the kingdom uh, because we realize that this invitation that we are, have, have received, this banquet that we feast on, is not based on us, it's based on the host. It's based on the graciousness of the host, the opulent resources of the host, and the fact that he wants his house full. We get included because he wants his house full. There's no points given because you happen to believe the right things as opposed to the wrong things. I'm glad you believe all the right things, but there's no points for that, sorry. There's no points given because you come to church. There's no points given because you pray more than other people. There's no points given because you're straight rather than gay or you're wealthy rather than poor or you're healthy rather than disabled or you belong to this political party rather than that political party. There's no points because it's all a matter of free grace. It's all a matter of God's love. We're invited as beggars who are hungry and that's it. Amen. Humility is the foundation for the whole thing. So we need to check ourselves. Is there any part of our being? See, if you are really invested in the religion thing, in the point system, in, in America, you know, and, and that that's part of your self-assurance, you stand before God, right, because you're in the right country, in the right religion, the right this and the right that, and you do the right things, then you're probably getting mad right now. And that's okay. I love you. <laughs> but see, the Pharisees were very mad at this. This is what got Jesus crucified. That's all right. In the kingdom, all the point system is meaningless. And the second group of people, the warning is to the, to, to the righteous. The, war, the, the, the promise is to the unrighteous. Those who assume that they were outside. Those who are already humble because they know that they don't have any, any leg to stand on. Uh, there's a, a word of promise, a, a, a good news here. To those who assume that they were outside the system, the losers of the religious system, the losers of the idolatrous nationalistic religion thing, there's good news to them because the invitation is given especially to them. And it may be that there are some hearing this message right now who you bought into the pharisaical lie that your particular sin has put you outside the bounds of the invitation. You have screwed up your life so massively. Your drug abuse has done so much damage. You've harmed not only yourself, but others. You've squandered so much potential. Uh, the, 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 the murder that you committed, the abortion that you had, the affair that you had, the divorces you've been through, uh, the ways you've cheated people, that, that has all put you outside the bounds of the invitation. Now, the, the, what you've done maybe is going to mess up a lot of things for a long time, and there's no quick fixes on that. But what you've got to know is that you're not outside the invitation at all. If you'll simply submit to him, you're in the invitation. In fact, you're not only invited, but you've got to hear the voice of God spoken on Calvary. He's compelling you. He's begging you. He's imploring you to come into his house and to feast at the table because he does. He wants his house to be full, and that includes you. And that's not based on anything in you. And you have the advantage of knowing that because if it was based on anything in you, then you would not be invited, but neither would any of us. It's not based on anything in you. It's based on the graciousness of the host. And accepting this invitation is simply a matter of, of saying yes and surrendering your life. But that means surrendering your life. I mean, that there's, that's the price that you have to surrender everything. 
and you join with the people of God in walking out this kingdom call, this banquet table. The wonderful thing about Christ is this. See, religion says, clean up your act, and then you can come to the table. And Jesus says, come to the table. And as you eat, you know what? Your act will start to get cleaned up. I'll work with you on that. But first, let's have some dinner. Amen. Close your eyes for a moment. Holy Spirit, teach us what we need to hear, what we need to learn. Is there any part of us that stands in, is there any part of our assurance? I want us to all feel assured, but is there any part of that assurance that's rooted in the fact that you believe the right things, that you pray, and that you're not as bad as others? Maybe rooted in the fact that you're American. Is all of your confidence, all of your confidence rooted in the graciousness of the host? and the opulence of his resources. And if you, is there any part of you that judges others, looks down on others, disdains others, thinks you're better than others? Holy Spirit, if there is, will you help us to see it and then reframe that as us having a log and whatever sin the person that we look down on has, to see that as a mere dust particle in comparison. Free us from the diabolical bondage of judgmental religion. Free us from the bondage of self-righteousness and self-assurance and self-confidence based on anything in us. That we can, Lord, move into the true beauty of total confidence that's rooted exclusively, completely, and exhaustively in you and in your goodness and the opulence of your table and the bigness of your house. Holy Spirit, teach us what we need to learn. And Lord, if there's anyone here or listening by other means who has always thought that they were the outsider, at best they could be a second or third class kingdom person, Lord, would would you compel them, persuade them, pull them into the kingdom to let them know that whatever their sin is, your grace. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. That the invitation goes especially to them and pull them in to surrender their life authentically to you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said one last time. Amen. Amen. Will the prayer team come forward? If you have any need you want to have prayed for, come forward. If you surrender your life to Christ, come forward. Talk to these people about it. Otherwise, go out and build the kingdom. Shine with the graciousness and goodness of the host who invites us to the banquet. Amen.